The projector is warming up and everybody's settling down. Just to review the announcements that Gene Brown's memorial service is going to be this Saturday morning at 1030 at uh, Grace uh, Bible Church, which is out on uh, Schroeder Road. You'll have to uh, get on the Internet and search the address in order to find exactly where it is. It's not difficult. You just go up 249 exit for Schroeder Road. I think you have to take the exit for Highway 6 first, go through those lights, or 1960 at that point. Go through those lights. What? There is an exit at Schroeder? Okay, you exit at Schroeder Road, you turn right, you go down about a mile or so, half mile, and it's on the right. Okay? Pretty simple. And then following that, there's going to be a barbecue lunch everyone's invited to at a place called Shirley Acres, and the address is 217 Warner Road. We're sending out an email. I don't know if it's gone out yet or not, but there's an email uh, that's supposed to go out with that address, W-O-E-R-N-E-R, okay? So everyone is invited to a barbecue lunch. Also, um, pray for Camp Arete, July 16th to 22nd. And pray for the Vacation Bible School, which is the week after that, July 24th to 26th. We have 14 signed up so far, so pray that we can uh, get some more uh, kids uh, lined up. Also, we continue to pray for the Franklin family, for Morgan and Sharon and Travis on the uh, sudden departure of Tony to be with the Lord. And his memorial service will be held on Saturday, July 15th at 10.30 in the morning at St. Thomas uh, Episcopal Church, which is at 4900 Jackwood Street in Houston. It is located behind Meyerland Shopping Center, okay? So it's fairly uh, easy to find. You uh, exit Beechnut. You can... um, Either keep going straight and turn right on Jackwood, I think, or you can go down just past Meyerland and then turn left on that first street behind the mall, and that'll take you there. It's pretty easy to find. Also, continuing reminder, we've had uh, probably about 16 or 18 people sign up so far for the D.C. trip, and that's beginning to... Uh, generate a little <clears throat> a little more action. So if you thinking about going, there are only 30 rooms that will be reserved. So that will be, uh, we've got maybe about eight or nine of those taken already. So uh, uh, pay attention to that. I think that's it for for the announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that you are spiritually prepared to study the Lord and worship as we study his word this evening. And after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Our Father, we're thankful that you are a God of comfort, who comforts us with your word, comforts us with the truth, and that it is your word that is truth and your word that is used to sanctify us and mature us and to teach us and train us. And Father, you have given us, God, the Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds to the truth of your word and to bring to our minds a recall of that which we have learned, the promises we've learned. And Father, we pray that there are so many families in the congregation going through different types of tests, many related to health, some related to finances and jobs, some related to uh, other aspects of life. And Father, we pray that we would all learn more to trust you, to be consistent, to claim promises. And Father, we pray that as we study tonight that we might be strengthened in our understanding of the truth of your word and how to uh, provide a conf- confident answers to those who inquire the hope that is in us, that we may have the answers for those who are believers who may be questioning or doubting their uh, the truth of Christianity. Father, we pray that you would help us to uh, internalize this information that we might use it when the need arises. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I mentioned this on Sunday because the book had disappeared from the pulpit, but I have two copies sitting up here on the pulpit now. There's two more, I think, scattered around in the library, and I'd encourage you to go back to the library. There are a number of really great videos, especially for kids. Uh, Those Incredible Creatures by Joe Martin, just fabulous information about all kinds of different animals demonstrating that they could not, would, it's irrational to believe that uh, they evolved by by chance and Job I've known Job about 40 years and he does a fabulous job in those videos this is a book that Ken Ham who's the uh, founder and director of uh, uh, Answers in Genesis ministry they have a fabulous website all kinds of tremendous information And he and Britt Beamer wrote this book about four years ago called Already Gone, Why Your Kids Will Quit Church and What You Can Do to Stop It. And it is an eye-opening expose on how the large percentage, huge percentage of kids that grow up in uh, allegedly Bible-teaching churches who within six months of going off to college or university or graduating from high school or leaving home uh, give up their beliefs in Christianity because they no longer believe they're rational. They no longer believe that they are factual or historical because they're not taught doctrine. They're not taught truth. They're not taught why we believe what we believe. They're not given that kind of foundation. And so when they go to junior college, they go to uh, university, uh, they get hit with a, a, a vast array of, of information that in some cases is false, in some cases it's extremely outdated and also false, and in other cases it's peer pressure. And they succumb to that very rapidly. And so the role of parents from the time that little child is born is to front load their brains with the truth of God's word. Every now and then I hear parents who say, well, I'll just wait till they grow up and then they can make up their own mind. 
you, you just said you're a failure as a parent. The parent's job is to train and teach the children to front load their brains with all that information to shape the neurons and the synapse and everything else in terms of the Word of God so that so that you've laid a foundation of pre-evangelism and pre-training in those children from the time they're, they're baby, uh, diaper babies, reading them the scripture, playing hymns for those kids. I can't say that loud enough. If I could get up here and start speaking in tongues and jump up and down and fall down on my face to get your attention, I would do that. Play hymns for these kids. Play good music for these kids. You can play other things too, but but you should be playing that kind of music. That also shapes their thinking. If it's good music, it's going to have a lot of consequences just on shaping their uh, future ability to appreciate music and to hear music and to listen to music. All those things are very, very important. Reading out loud to your kids, reading Bible stories to your kids, even when they're diaper babies, that's important. Never give up. It's never too early and it's never too late. So that's important to do that. So I encourage you, if your parents or grandparents, uh, take a look at one of these copies. You can check it out from the library. This is where we are in our study. We're in the 16th lesson of application of 1 Peter 3.15, which says that we are to give an answer for the hope that is in us. We've talked about how to give an answer because the right thing must be done the right way. And the last few lessons, we've been talking about some of the content that should be in those answers. As we studied and we were talking about methodology, is there different ways to present the evidence? Some are right ways and some are wrong ways, but it's not an issue which has been somewhat wrongly um, uh, wrongly stated in some of these debates over how. It's not about evidence or no evidence. It's about how you use the evidence. God always has given evidence of his work his uh, objective evidence that can be validated that validated and verified in human history so we're looking at the lord jesus christ as we come to towards the end of this subseries and i have raised three basic questions that are frequently asked by Unbelievers, they're also asked by by believers. Maybe you've got uh, children, they've grown up, they're uh, late teens, they're in their 20s, and they're wondering, why, do I, why would I believe that? I don't believe Christianity is true. And they hear all kinds of different, different stories. And this confirms, gives confidence to believers that uh, they can not park their brain in neutral by become, being a Christian and believing what the Bible says, and also in the case of evangelism, there are people who ask questions. I've told you this story before that when I was um, in college, when I was in my right around 20 years old, I had been in college. I had a firm doctrinal background, firm background of Bible teaching, and had read quite widely in the whole area of creation and evolution. But you just get hammered in subtle ways again and again and again in in uh, university classrooms. And I had reached a point where I was seriously asking, can we really believe the Bible to be true? 
and I uh, was going to counsel at Camp Pinal that summer, and before uh, we solidified the deal, uh, Gordon Whitelock, who was a director, said, well, Robbie, why don't you come up and uh, counsel one weekend at a high school camp, and then we'll talk about it. So I went up for the weekend, and Randy Price was the co-counselor in that cabin, and he and I would sit up and talk about these things, and Randy said, here, I've got a copy of my book, um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It had just been out maybe less than a year by Josh McDowell. He said, you just take my copy and read that, and which is what I did. Over the next uh, week or so, I read through that whole book, and uh, it's a lot easier to read now because it was basically – Josh McDowell is a speaker for Campus Crusade for Christ, and it was basically his the outlines of his lecture notes, and they've cleaned it up, made it a lot more into prose, e- easier to read, and they've updated it with a lot more information than uh, the first edition, and it's uh, still in print, but it's a it's a tremendous tool, and two of the chapters that really impressed me. Uh, were related to what I'm going to be teaching tonight and next week. And the first one was the, I think he calls it the trilemma. Uh, Lord, liar, who was Jesus? Lord, liar, or lunatic? And I read that, and I, I had never heard that before, and I thought, well, that truly made a lot of sense. It didn't originate with Josh McDowell. A lot of people think it originated with C.S. Lewis. It didn't originate with C.S. Lewis either. It's it's a long, has a long history uh, within the history of Christianity. And then the second area we'll probably get into a little bit tonight because it's a much uh, larger topic, and that is evidence for the resurrection of Christ which is the linchpin of Christianity, as the Apostle Paul says, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we're all fools. There's no hope. So what we've done is we've looked at the first question, can we trust the Bible, including the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus? And the answer was, yes, we can. There's a tremendous amount of evidence internally and externally to validate the claims of the Bible. Second, we're asking this question, who was Jesus? And third, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Related to the question on who was Jesus, we looked at these prophecies from the Old Testament, pointing out that the mathematical probability of just 10 coming true in one person at one time are just astronomically are astronomical and virtually impossible, and yet there are over a hundred prophecies that were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ at his first coming. The remainder are to be fulfilled at his second coming. We looked at the question, the historical question, did Jesus really exist, and showed that there was tremendous evidence from Uh, external sources from the Bible and from non-Christian sources confirming the historical existence of Jesus of Nazareth. And then I looked at the last time also the claims that Jesus made about who he was in the Bible. We'll review some of that a little bit tonight. And then the third question we'll begin later on is the question, did Jesus really rise, rise from the dead? Now, in Matthew chapter 16... Jesus asks his disciples an important question. Who do people say that I am? This is in Matthew 16, 13. 
Jesus and his disciples were in the far north in Galilee, almost to the farthest northernmost part in uh, Judea at the time, or in Israel at the time. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they answered, Well, some people think you're John the Baptist, some people think you're Elijah, some people think you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And that's the important question for people. Who do you think that Jesus was? And people usually come up with one of several answers, none of which put him in a negative light. But they'll either say that Jesus is a good moral teacher. That's probably the most common. He's a great religious teacher or innovator, and others may say that he was a revolutionary that came out in the 60s in the baby boom rebellion generation where everybody's got to be a Marxist rebel. And then they, but very few people will say that Jesus was a liar or Jesus was crazy. Even the, some of the most skeptical uh, philosophers and anti-Christian skeptics will admit that there's nothing about Jesus that indicates that he is deceptive. So this has given rise to the issue tonight. Now, of course, Simon Peter nails the answer when he says, you are the Christ that is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of the living God. The issue is, does the evidence validate Jesus' claim that he is God, that he is the Son of God? So this raises the issue. Is Jesus who he claims to be, that is the Lord, that is he is God himself, he is the Son of God, or is he lying? Now Jesus, as we'll see in a minute, have a nice flow chart, Jesus is either telling the truth or he's not telling the truth. If he's not telling the truth, he either believes that he is telling the truth and he's self-deceived, or he knows that he is not telling the truth, in which case he is intentionally uh, deceiving people. So he's either a liar or he's just absolutely psychotic. When we look at some of the statements that are made about this argument, one that is stated by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity goes like this. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. See, people think that they can get away with that, that somehow that lets you down easily and they can feel somewhat good about it. They're not being too critical. But As Lewis points out, this is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus didn't leave people with that option. As we saw last time, he claimed to be God. The Sanhedrin heard that as blasphemy, and that was the indictment against him was his claim to be God. Philip Schaff, who was a 19th century church historian and theologian, writes this in his History of the Christian Church. This testimony, that is the testimony about Jesus that's given in the Gospels, if not true, must be downright blasphemy or madness. The former hypothesis cannot stand a moment before the moral purity and dignity of Jesus revealed in his every word and work and acknowledged by universal consent. Self-deception is a matter so momentous and with an intellect in all respects so clear and so sound is equally out of the question. How could he be an enthusiast or madman? Enthusiast is somebody who's just emotional and, and uh, crazy. Uh, enthusiast or madman who never lost the even balance of his mind, who sailed serenely over all the troubles and persecutions as the sun above the clouds, who always returned the wisest answer to tempting questions, who calmly and deliberately predicted his death on the cross, his resurrection on the third day, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the founding of his church, the destruction of Jerusalem, predictions which have been literally fulfilled. A character so original, so complete, so uniformly consistent, so perfect, so human, and yet so high above all human greatness can be neither a fraud nor a fiction. The poet, as has been well said, would in this case be greater than the hero. And then I just love this comment. It would take more than a Jesus to invent a Jesus. Nobody's going to invent some, a story about someone like Jesus because we can't conceive of it. No one else has ever approached any kind of figure like that. Now, when we look at the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, many of which are also based on the Torah from the Old Testament, so I want to include this as contributions of not just Christianity, but some of these uh, in this list are contributions of, uh, of Judaism. So it really comes out of both Old and New Testament that our world is radically transformed by the teaching of Jesus. And this is a list that comes out of a book by James Kennedy on what if Jesus had never lived. And he has this list, and I've modified it. I've added a number of things, but he, gave, he gives the core of this list in his book, and I've added it. That's fine print for you because I wanted to put all this in one, on one slide, and I'll go through the list. He talks about hospitals. There were nobody else. Buddhists didn't develop hospitals. Uh, Islam didn't develop hospitals. 
atheists, pagans didn't develop hospitals. Hospitals came out of Christianity, especially in the Middle Ages. There were some uh, proto-hospital type things among Jews and much earlier, but essentially what we think of as of a hospital today came out of the uh, Middle Ages. Orphanage also de developed within the framework of Christianity. You don't have orphanages developing outside of a Christian framework, a biblical framework. Universities. Universities developed out of the uh, desire to educate clergy in the Middle Ages. The great schools at Chartres, at Paris, at Oxford, Cambridge, the, in Rome, in Boulogne, these were places that were designed initially to train and educate priests and clergy and later expanded into all of the areas that we think of as a university today. When you think of the universities in America, the Ivy League schools, from Harvard to Yale and Princeton and Dartmouth and Columbia, all had their foundation in a desire to provide education for clergy among the colonists from the very beginnings of the uh, colonization period in the mid-1600s. Many of their purpose statements initially were to train clergy. They were Christian institutions that much later became perverted and secularized. Literacy and education of the masses grew out of a desire to read and know God's word. In, the six, in about 1670, I have a chart at home that lists the uh, literacy rate in uh, of all the different uh, settlements, towns, and villages in Massachusetts Colony. The lowest literacy rate is around 95%. Why? Those parents wanted their children to be able to read and understand the Word of God. That was its primary purpose. If your eternal life and eternal destiny is predicated upon your understanding what God has revealed to you, that's a much greater motivation to education and reading than that you can have a good job and make a better paycheck. Ultimately, those sort of temporal things may motivate some people, but they don't motivate all people. British common law and the freedom, freedoms in Britain go back to the Bible. They go back to an understanding of biblical truth. As I spoke last Sunday with Alfred the Great and his Book of Dooms, the Book of Laws, he taught himself Hebrew so that he could translate the Psalms into the language of his people. The abolition of slavery, both in antiquity and in modern times, is a result of Christianity. Modern science comes out of Christianity. There are several good books written on that topic. Uh, the discovery of the New World by Columbus. Columbus was motivated to take the gospel to the uh, primitive aboriginal inhabitants of the New World. The colonization of America, one of the primary motives Part, some were motivated by greed. That would usually be uh, coming out of the um, uh, Catholic countries. But they were also motivated. They always took priests with them. Remember, much of that was before 
are during the early stages of the Protestant Reformation, and so that was basically your primary option was was Roman Catholicism. They had an evangelistic motivation. The colonization of America was fueled by uh, settlers who wanted to get away from the oppression of the um, Anglican Church and state churches in Europe. So they came here for freedom. So the whole idea of the freedoms that are enshrined in our Constitution came out of Christianity. Representative government developed from uh, passages in uh, Exodus. The separation of political powers as well, uh, benevolence and charity, the whole Good Samaritan ethic comes out of Christianity. Uh, high, higher standards of justice comes from Christianity. The elevation of the value of every human life has its root in the Old Testament, in the Torah, and the New Testament. Uh, civilizing of many barbarian and primitive cultures in Europe, in Africa, in India, in China, in Japan. They were prim extremely primitive and barbaric, but those cultures were transformed by the ethics of Christianity. The codifying and setting into writing of many of the world's languages. Great motivation is to learn lang the languages of primitive people, convert that into grammar and into an alphabet so that they can learn to read and be given the gospel. And we've seen... Uh, various ministries that do that. Uh, the greater development of art and music. If you go to uh, many museums and you study Renaissance art, the focal point is on biblical themes. If you didn't have biblical themes, you wouldn't have the art or the music. And lastly, the eternal life that has re been received by untold millions as a result of Christianity. That just names, if you didn't have Christ, the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament, you can't imagine how barbaric this world would be. All because of the presence of Christ. So what did Jesus claim about himself? This is just a review of some of the passages we looked at last time. When Jesus is confronted by the uh, Sanhedrin, they addressed him, and uh, they had these false witnesses that came up and charged him with false, sta with, uh, false statements. And he said, and the, they're asking Jesus, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? He's saying, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? The Blessed was just another way, uh, a circumlocution of talking about God because they didn't want to use the name of God, so they would use something like the Blessed, uh, the Eternal, something like that to refer to God. And Jesus said, yes, that's what he means when he says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. We saw last week that that is a reference to both Daniel 7 and Psalm 110 in terms of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God. They understood that's what he was claiming. The high priest tore his robes and accused that of blasphemy. Jesus clearly claimed to be God. Now, you'll hear people will say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Really? How do you say that? Well, because they just discount every claim in the New Testament when Jesus claims to be. Well, they just wrote that later. And then you say, really, can you prove that? Well, no, they can't. 
And I gave you some quotes from people like John A.T. Robinson, who is a liberal, who is the founder of the God is Dead theology in the early 60s, who on the basis of historical and archaeological evidence said that everything that was written about Jesus was that was written in the New Testament was written before the fall of Jerusalem. It was He said it's all written before 70. Now, most conservative Bible scholars wouldn't claim that. There are uh, maybe the Gospel of John, Revelation, maybe one or two other books would be written after that. Most of them were written before 70, and they were written when the eyewitnesses of the accounts of Jesus' life were still alive. And so you couldn't get away with publishing things that were false about that if there were people who were still eyewitnesses who knew different. So Jesus gives people two alternatives. Either his claims are false, which is the uh, left column as you're looking at this, or his claims were true. Now, if his claims were true, he is who he claimed to be. He is God incarnate. He is the promised and prophesied Messiah and Savior uh, from the Old Testament uh, prophecies, and that he came to die on the cross and to rise from the dead, which is a demonstration of the truth of his claims to be the Savior. If his claims are not true, you only have one option. His claims were false. If his claims were false, you have two options. Either he knew his claims were false, that's the far left column, or he did not know that his claims were false. If he knew his claims were false, then he made a deliberate misrepresentation. When he told people if they believed in him, they would go to heaven, he knew he was lying. He was intentionally deceiving them and giving them false confidence. He would be a liar. He would be a hypocrite. And, in fact, he could be demonic. And he was a fool because he died for his claim to be God. Now, that is a telling point. If Jesus claimed to be God and he knew he was lying about it, then he was a fool because that is exactly what the indictment was, was that he was a blasphemer because he claimed to be God. So that claim really doesn't seem to hold water for anybody who has two gray brain cells that occasionally connect with each other. The other option is that Jesus did not know that his claims were false, in which case he is self-deluded and self-deceived. He would be sincerely deluded. He would believe it. This is on the order of someone who believes that there uh, might be, they believe they're Napoleon Bonaparte, or they believe they're George Washington, or they believe they're an elephant, although today we're having a lot of people who have transgender, trans what species problems and they think they're a you know you have a male human who thinks he's a female rhinoceros or hippopotamus so we have a number of people these people are just absolutely psychotic and that's the conclusion so jesus leaves us with two options he doesn't leave us with the option that he's a good religious teacher a good moral teacher that he is um, here for our benefit. He, he's either who he claims to be or he is a an evil deceiver or he is absolutely psychotic. What were Jesus' claims? 
Matthew 27:43 tells us that he says he trusted in God. This is the centurion talking, said uh, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, this is the out of the mouth of the centurion, I am the son of God. That's what he said. So he is attesting to his claim to be the son of God. In John 10.25, in a context where Jesus is in a confrontation with the religious leaders, he told them in verse 25, I told you, you do not believe. The issue in the Gospel of John is not how moral or good or religious we are. The issue presented in the Gospel of John is that to be saved, to have eternal life, we must believe what Jesus said about who he is and what he was going to do on the cross. And he tells the religious leaders, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. So you look at the evidence of his life. You look at the evidence of his miracles. You look at the evidence of his teaching. This is evidence that does not indicate someone who is either intentionally deceptive or who is self-deluded and psychotic. And then he makes the astounding claim in verse 30, I and the Father are one. And I pointed out last time that he does not use a masculine form of the word one, uh, which would indicate that he, they were one person. He's not saying he is the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. It is a neuter, which indicates we are of identical essence. We are of unity of essence. But the Jews understood exactly what he was claiming. And for that, they picked up stones to throw at him because he had committed blasphemy and was to be stoned to death. Further, we see in that same passage, Immediately following that, Jesus answered them as they get ready to stone him. Many good works I've shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy and because you being a man make yourself God, out to be God. See, that's they understood Jesus claimed to be God. Now, modern liberals and people who are anti-Christian they don't understand. They want to say Jesus never said he was God. Well, the Pharisees and Sadducees in the first century understood that was his claim, and that's why they were going to crucify him. In John five seventeen and 18, we saw this last time. He says, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. And the way this is structured, he is claiming identity with the father's work. My father's been working, I've been working. He's claiming that this is in tandem together, in unity, that they are one and the same. And then, and that's what the Jews understood, because they sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. They understood what that terminology, God is my father, was all about. He, they never said that. You can search the rabbinical writings. They never claimed God's their father. They understood that his claim that God was his father was a claim to unity with God and that he was fully God. In John 8, 
great chapter, another confrontation with the religious leaders. And at the end of a lengthy convert, uh, uh, confrontation, they ha- he has referenced Abraham, that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they say, well, how can that be? You're too young to have known Abraham. This is a silly argument. And he said, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. In the Greek, it's ego me. It is a translation of what is found in Exodus 4 when Moses asked the God at the burning bush to identify who he was, and God gave him the name Yahweh and said, it means I am who I am. I am this is what Moses was to say, I am has sent me. So I am is the name of God. And seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses this phrase, ego me," which is a clear claim to be God. And they understood it that way. In verse 59, they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself, went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. He just made himself invisible to them. Earlier in the chapter, we read, Then they said to him, Where is your father? And Jesus said, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury, and as he taught in the temple, no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. They understood it, they attempted, but they could not. And then in Mark fourteen sixty-one to 64, The high priest asked Jesus, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? This is parallel to the passage that we began with. Jesus said, I am. You'll see the Son of Man, or this is the passage we're talking about, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds. And they said, Whatever, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him, deserving of death. Jesus was crucified for claiming to be God. In John 19, 7, uh, the, Jews, the Jews answered him and said, We have a law, and according to our law, he, they're talking to Pilate, We have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. So again and again and again in the Gospels, Jesus claims to be God. There, there are many more passages, many more parallels we can go to. He didn't leave that option up to say, Well, he just claimed to be a good moral teacher. There are too many passages that indicate otherwise. Josh McDowell writes this, If Jesus was a liar, a con man, and therefore an evil, foolish man, then how can we explain the fact that he left us with the most profound moral instruction and powerful moral example that anyone has ever left? Could a deceiver, an imposter of monstrous proportions, teach such unselfish ethical truths and live such a morally exemplary life as Jesus did. The very notion is incredible. You're not just going to find somebody who's psychotic and insane like Hannibal Lecter making these kinds of claims is what he's saying. It doesn't fit. Bonaparte, Napoleon Bonaparte said this, I know men, I think this was a great quote, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. 
There is between Christianity and whatever other religions the distance of infinity. Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me, and his will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly a being by himself, his ideas and sentiments, the truth which he announces. His manner of convincing are not explained either by human organization or by the nature of things. He says, the nearer I approach, the more carefully I examine. Everything is above me. Everything remains grand of a grandeur which overpowers. His religion is a revelation from an intelligence which certainly is not that of a man. One can absolutely find nowhere but in him alone the imitation of the example of his life. I search in vain in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history nor humanity nor the ages nor nature offer me anything with which I am able to compare it or to explain it. Here, everything is extraordinary. So we're left with the following. Who is Jesus? Well, we hear the testimony from numerous people in the Gospels. In John eleven twenty seven, after Jesus has said, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, and whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He says that to Martha at the time that Lazarus had died, and Martha's response in John eleven twenty seven is, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. After the resurrection, when the other disciples had seen the resurrected Jesus, they've told Thomas, and Thomas doesn't believe them. Thomas says, I'm not going to see it until I can put my fingers into the nail holes in his hands and the wound in his side. And when Jesus appeared to him before he had the empirical evidence other than just visibly seeing Jesus, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. The evidence was overwhelming. John eleven twenty seven. I've already put that in there. I missed, missed another verse. Okay, let's go to the second topic. Introduction to the second main event, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I wanted to read... A gospel account to you. I have a book in my library called The Greatest Story, and it is was originally written by a guy named Johnson, and it was revised by a man whose last name is Cheney, who was a professor at Western uh, Conservative Baptist Seminary. And what he did was he took the gospel accounts and he put them together. He merged them together so that when you read his book, The Greatest Story, you read you can read all read the story as if all of the gospel accounts were one story. So he's merged them together. It's quite an uh, an interesting approach and helpful when you're just trying to understand how everything fits together in the life uh, life of Jesus. The resurrection of Christ is described in Matthew twenty eight. 1 through 10, 
in Mark 16, 1 to 11, in Luke 24, 1 to 12, and in John 21 through 18. So those are the four central passages on the resurrection. And I want to read the story to you from uh, the greatest story as uh, Johnson and Cheney have put this together. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought, bought spices which they intended to use to anoint Jesus' body. They and several others with them came at early dawn on the first day of the week to see the tomb, bringing along the spices they had prepared. Suddenly there was a powerful earthquake. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled the stone away from the door and sat on it. He shone like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were terrified and became like dead men. Now, after Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Mary came to the tomb while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the door. Then she ran to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, that would be John, the one who Jesus loved, and said to them, They took away the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple went out and ran toward the tomb. They started out running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped down and saw the linen cloths lying there, but didn't go in. Simon Peter arrived shortly afterward and went into the tomb. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, the face cloth which had been around his head was lying not with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. They did not yet understand the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So the disciples returned to their homes, wondering what had happened. But Mary kept standing outside near the tomb, weeping. As she was weeping, she stooped down and looked into the tomb where she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one angel at the head and the other at the feet. Woman, they asked her, why are you weeping? Because they took away my Lord, she answered, and I don't know where they laid him. After saying this, she turned and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was him. Woman, Jesus asked her, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you carried him away, please tell me where you laid him and I'll take him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned toward him and said, Rabboni, which means uh, dear teacher. Don't hold on to me, Jesus said to her, for I haven't yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. We'll go into a lot of details related to the resurrection, the guards at the tomb, the seals on the stone and all of that next time. But this evening, what I just want to do is focus on the importance of the resurrection.
Josh McDowell, in evidence that demands a verdict, says, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men, or it is the most amazing fact of history. And that's it. Those are the only options people have. And so that's a point to talk to people about. Well, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to explain it away? Uh, One of the most interesting books that has been published on this is a book called Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison. This book was written back in the 60s. It's a small paperback. You can probably still get either a used or new copy off of uh, Amazon. And he started off as an anti-Christian skeptic. And as years went by, he kept thinking, I'm going to write a book that will completely disprove Christianity. He's neither the first nor the last that will attempt to do that and end up coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so that's a great study on the resurrection. So as we look at what uh, McDowell has said, he sets it up again. It's a logical argument to get people to think about why they are rejecting Christ. Again, it goes back to understanding the different claims that he has made, that he made various uh, claims. There are three basic lines of evidence on his claims, the impact of his life, his teaching, the miracles, and um, and then second, the fulfilled prophecy, and third, his resurrection. This is what I've been focusing on for the last uh, two or three lessons. When we look at these claims, his claims to be God that we've just recently reviewed, I'm going to skip through that, we must recognize the importance of this resurrection. Norm Geisler writes, The resurrection cannot verify Jesus' claims to be God unless he was resurrected in the body in which he was crucified. That body was a literal physical body. Unless Jesus rose in a material body, there's no way to verify his resurrection. It loses its historical persuasive value. That's to the point that Jesus didn't just sort of dematerialize. He didn't just appear in a spiritual form. One of the movies that came out towards the end of the 70s about Jesus, I think it was Jesus of Nazareth, I'm not sure. But at the end of the the film, of course, this went out to a major theatrical release, all you hear is the disembodied voice of Jesus speaking to his disciples. That's not how it worked. Jesus wasn't some ephemeral ghost that showed up. He showed up in a physical body that was the resurrected body that is the prototype of our future resurrection body. This is a point that that uh, Dr. Geisler is making. By the way, I just heard this last week that he suffered a stroke last weekend, and I haven't heard any more how how serious it is or what the consequences are, but uh, we need to be in prayer for Dr. Geisler and his family. So he emphasizes this. This is the evidentiary value of the resurrection. In fact, this is what is referred to in the scripture 
In Romans 1, 3, and 4, Paul writes concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. God is giving authentication, validation of who Jesus Christ is and his claims to be God by the resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 13, and 14 emphasizes the central role of the resurrection for Christian faith. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then there, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. And he goes on to say, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we are to be pitied among all people. We are fools because we have believed something that is a lie. This is why the fact of the resurrection is the focal point of Lee Strobel's book, the, cause, the, the Case for Christ, and the film that came out this last spring uh, that, that narrows that down. And the, if you remember, as a reporter who's a skeptic, who's agnostic, doesn't believe anything about Christianity, in fact, he's hostile to Christianity, he comes at it from an evidentialist viewpoint, and that's clear in terms of his methodology. And he says several times, if you follow the evidence, you'll know the truth. Well, we know that's not true because there's a lot of people who follow the evidence and won't come to the right conclusions because the issue is volition and the issue is whether or not you're going to believe the evidence. So just because you follow the evidence doesn't mean you'll believe it. But many times it's the facts that God uses that will break down those presuppositions, which is what happened in uh, Lee Strobel's case. The resurrection is a evidential validation of his claim to be God, if not the evidential validation of his claim to be God. When we compare Christianity to the four major world religions that are based on uh, a personality, we discovered that of these other religions, they are based on men who are in the grave. You can look at either Abraham or Moses, and they are both in the grave. If you look at um, Islam, Muhammad is in the grave. He, is, um, he died, and he is buried in Medina. He died on June the 8th, 632, when he was 61 years old, and Muslims visit his tomb on an annual basis. Um, Abraham died. And he is buried in uh, the tomb of Machpelah. We know that Moses died on Mount Nebo. We know that uh, Gautama Buddha died, and that is attested in Buddhist scripture. Only Jesus not only died, but rose from the dead and has an empty tomb. That is the distinction. No other world religion or philosophy has a founder who conquered death. When we look at the resurrection and its centrality in the early church, we see it initially uh, very powerfully on the day of Pentecost in uh, Peter's sermon. Notice what he says in Acts 2. 
He says, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. He's just quoted from Psalm 16, 8 through 10. He says, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. See, in Psalm 16, 8 through 10, David talks about that, that my holy one will not undergo decay. And Peter is saying, see, David's not talking about himself because he's both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Messiah to sit on his throne. That is David's throne. Okay, so he's, Peter is saying under divine inspiration that David clearly understood that he was talking about the future resurrection of the Messiah. So there is one promise in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be raised from the dead. Peter goes on to say, He, that is David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. In this message in Acts 2, Peter says four specific things about the resurrection. First of all, that the resurrection was prophesied in the Old Testament. This wasn't something that Christians just made up. It is something that goes back at least a thousand years. We would say it goes back much further than that. We, I would say that it goes back to at least Genesis 22 because there is Abraham expected that if he sacrificed Isaac and, and killed him, that God would raise him from the dead. So the understanding of resurrection goes back further, but specifically in Scripture, uh, Psalm 16 tells us that the Messiah would be raised from the dead. Second, that the resurrection was witnessed to by the disciples. They were witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Not only the disciples or apostles, but at least 500 more were witnesses of the resurrection. Third, the resurrection became the foundation for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to say in the verses following those I quoted that because of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Jesus will pour out the Holy Spirit. So that's predicated on the resurrection. All of the church is an outgrowth and result of the resurrection. And then he says that the resurrection authenticates Jesus' messianic and royal claims. So people and historians and scholars have recognized the centrality of the resurrection. I think I surprised a lot of people with a few of the quotes from John Locke this last Sunday. I have another one for you, ran across today. Uh, John Locke said, Our Savior's resurrection is truly of great importance in Christianity. Notice he says, our Savior. That indicates that he views Jesus as his Savior. Is of truly of great importance in Christianity, so great that his being or not being the Messiah stands or falls with it, so that these two important articles are inseparable and, in effect, make one. For since that time, believe one and you believe both, deny one of them, and you can believe neither. So, Christianity, the resurrection of Christ, and Jesus being the Messiah are inseparably connected. Again, a quote from Philip Schaff in his eight-volume uh, work on the history of the Christian church, which only goes up 
to about the end of the Reformation, by the way. Eight volumes, and you only get to about 1560 or something like that. He says, the resurrection of Christ is therefore emphatically a test question upon which depends the truth or falsehood of the Christian religion. It is either the greatest miracle or the greatest delusion which history records. So this is the foundation. Jesus stakes his claim on the reality of the resurrection. And he prophesied and predicted. Every time he talked about his death, he talked about his resurrection. The earliest statement is in John 2. This is after the miracle of changing the water into wine at at the wedding in Cana. He goes to Jerusalem for the Passover, and there he does many other signs. And when the Jews confronted him, they said, What sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, they thought he was talking about the Herodian temple, which had been under construction at that point for almost 50 years. And um, the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus said. Now, when it says they believed the scripture, see, that's what Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, Jesus was crucified and buried according to the scripture and rose from the dead according to the scripture. Well, the scripture that he's talking about isn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because they hadn't been written yet. It's talking about Old Testament prophecies related to the resurrection. Matthew twelve thirty eight to uh, 40, the Pharisees are rejecting Jesus' claim to be Messiah, and they say, we want to see a sign from you. And his response is, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. See, if Jesus was alive today and put that out on Twitter, the whole mainstream media would just absolutely hemorrhage over this. Okay? Jesus is calling the entire establishment evil and adulterous, the pure righteous religious establishment. He's nailing them. And he says he'll be in the grave for three days and three nights. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. He keeps saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised the third day. Matthew 17, 9. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Matthew 17, 22 and 23. While they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up, and they were exceedingly sorrowful. But they, as we see, they don't really understand it or get it. In Matthew twenty, eighteen and 19, Jesus said, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and discourage and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. 
If you were to hear anybody today predict that they were going to die and then three days later be risen from the dead, what would you think? That they're nuts. They're psychotic. And yet again and again and again, he says, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised on the third day. Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. What's their response? Mark 9.10, so they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising of the dead meant. They just didn't get it. But we get it. And the resurrection of Christ is central foundational it is that without which nothing it is the centerpiece of christian belief and so we'll come back next time and talk more about the evidences for the death of christ on the cross and his physical bodily resurrection father thank you that you have given us these many convincing proofs as jesus says in acts 1 demonstrations of the truthfulness of your word and the identity of Jesus and what he did and the significance of what he did on the cross. Father, help us to uh, learn this, internalize it, that we can use this in our discussions with unbelievers to help them come to uh, correctly understand the truth of the gospel that they might be saved. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.